0: Welcome to Sex Ed did not Suck. I'm Jen.
1: And I'm Kaylee. This week, we're talking to Rachel Fay, the Vice President of Policy and Strategic Partnership of the organization Power to Decide. Power to Decide is an organization focused on providing sexual health information and access. You might remember that we worked with them in November for Thanks Birth Control Month, and we also interviewed their CEO, Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley back in February for the Make Some Love campaign. If you haven't checked out that episode yet, we highly recommend giving it a listen. It's full of useful information on birth control and a ton of insights from someone who has worked in sexual health for basically their entire life.
0: This month, we're celebrating the Talking is Power campaign along with Power to Decide. And as part of that, we're talking to Rachel Fay all about sex education policy. Rachel is one of those people who really understands the inner workings of public health policy and is able to give us a total rundown of the current sex education in America.
1: God, sex education policy makes me horny.
0: I, yeah, (laughs) it,
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you enjoy. (laughs)
0: Rachel, thank you so much for being here today. We're super excited to chat with you. Thank you for having me. It's a great topic. Thank you. <laughs> so, we like to start off all of our interviews asking our guests what their pronouns and sexuality are. So, I am a
2: cis woman and my pronouns are she, her, and I love that that's the first thing you ask. <laughs> Perfect.
0: So, growing up, what was your sex education experience like? Like, what What did you learn in school? And I don't know if your parents or friends or anyone talked about or taught taught you about sex.
2: So I was raised by a single father, which um, I think, you know, dads today are getting a lot more involved in their children's sex education, but I think my father came from a generation, he grew up in the 50s and 60s, where that was a really uncomfortable conversation, Mm -hmm. but I do remember that when I started doing this work about 20 years ago, he told me that when we were looking at schools, we were moving to New York City and I was 13, he took administrators aside and asked what kind of sex ed they gave because he was very worried that he wasn't going to be able to have those conversations at home with me and he wanted to make sure that I was having, that there was a place where I was going to get that information. so, yeah, I didn't get a lot of sex ed at home, although I did have an older sister and an aunt and some cousins who kind of checked in mm. on me regularly and were like, hey, <laughs> do you need anything? Aww. But at, at least at home, it was it was fairly limited. But I would say that one of the things that we see as experts held true, which is that I had a really open, honest relationship with my parent. And if there was something that I needed, I did not feel like I couldn't go to him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think above and beyond having the talk, which is really honestly a series of talks throughout a young person's <laughs> mm-hmm, lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think having that kind of relationship where where the young people in your life, whether they're your child or someone you mentor or just someone that's in your world, making sure that they know that there's somewhere they can go. You know, I have a 16 year old niece. She's not my my blood, but I have said to her many times that I'm here. If there's anything she needs or just wants to talk about, you know, this is kind of what I do for a living. So She can feel free to use that. And I just think making that kind of open space is really important. But in terms of sex ed, I think you were asking also like what I got in school. Yeah. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when when I thought about this question, um, I really thought about the time that I was raised in. So, again, I'm going to betray my age here. I'm 42 years old. So (laughs) I was a teenager in the 90s in New Mm -hmm. York City. And, you know, a combination of growing up in a city where you don't have to wait for a driver's license to kind of go anywhere you want led to being, I think, kind of fearful Mm -hmm. about about their kids. And that coincided with, you know, a huge peak in the HIV AIDS epidemic and Mm. a time before antiretrovirals when a diagnosis of HIV was for most people a death sentence. Um, so the sex ed that we received was what you would call comprehensive. You know, Mm -hmm. we were taught that, that you should never be pressured into sex, that, you know, abstinence is the most effective way to prevent, you know, everything that you might be worried about. But if you're going to have sex, here's how to put a condom on and things like that. But it was all very fear tinged, Mm -hmm. um, Mm. because of HIV. It was all about, here's the STIs you could get. You could get AIDS, basically like every other message, you know, implicit and explicit was you could die of hiv so there was a lot of fear in my sex ed and Mm -hmm. i remember at the point when i first had sex it was it was tinged with a lot of fear instead of you know what you want it to be which is a joyful experience yeah so i think you know we we spend a lot of time talking about content when it comes to sexual health education but Mm -hmm. it's not just the content and values that we're conveying it's how we're doing it in a way that 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 helps young people to be healthy and not fearful of this really great part of their lives. So,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know Kaylee and I talk about that pretty much every episode on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it always strikes me how, because Kaylee and I got pretty religious sex ed growing up. So there was also that fear that, you know, God was going to come down and smite you or something. <laughs> but yeah. um, it always strikes me about how much fear is in, you know, secular or non-religious sex ed as well. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Um, And
2: that was definitely what I received. A lot of pictures of like STIs. It was our nurse who was probably in her 60s delivering the sex ed. So it wasn't (laughs) the most relatable person. (laughs) Yeah. By the time I was a senior in high school, we had launched a petition in student government to put condom dispensers in um, all of the bathrooms. And the board of trustees opposed it because our school (laughs) building had fifth grade through high school. We're like, Mm there is no fifth grader going into a high school bathroom. We
0: promise yeah. you, they're terrified. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we bully them right out of there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we got a lot of flack for it. Mm-hmm. And in the course of that, the, po- the school's policy, which was that there was a basket of condoms in the nurse's office and that no questions would be asked if you went and got them, also came under fire because a couple of student newspaper reporters went and got condoms and got the nth degree oh, from the nurse. Mm. And the condoms turned out to be expired. Oh. So, <sighs> I think a lot of young people don't know that I, I was talking to, you know, my partner, he he um, serves as a big brother and mm. his younger brother didn't know that condoms expire. His eyes went big.
0: <laughs> okay, oh check that. Yes.
2: So, you know, I think, I think, again, there's a lot of well-meaning sort of progressive values that that don't always translate to effective sexual yeah. Um, yeah. That is what young people need. So I think for a lot of us who are like, oh, well, I, you know, my, my young person gets taught about, you know, contraception and how to have safe sex. That's not in and of itself enough. You should be asking about, are they being taught healthy relationships and, mm-hmm. you know, how to set boundaries and, you know, that sex can be joyful. Is that class heteronormative or not? You know, there's a lot of important things that we don't always think about if we are parents or caregivers and not sort of steeped in this.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that kind of brings us to what you do with Power to Decide. Can you give us a little rundown of Power to Decide and specifically what you do with them? Sure.
2: So Power to Decide is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. Our goal is to help ensure that every person has the power to decide if, when, and under what circumstances to get pregnant and have a child. Um, And we do this through a wide variety of methods I work in the policy team and I sometimes joke that like, I'm on the boring side of things and then we have people who work directly with young people or who work with entertainment media to share information and they're like the cool kids. <laughs> yeah. And I work to advance uh, federal policies that improve sexual health education and access to sexual health care for young people. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, that means increasing federal funding that goes to states and communities to do high-quality, evidence-based, effective sexual health education, and also uh, resources to make sure that everybody has the sort of sexual health family planning needs that they have met, um, what we would call achieving their
0: reproductive well-being.
2: So that's in a very high level, but I'm happy to, to dive deeper with
0: you. Yeah. For what it's worth, I think that's very cool as well. Yeah. We seriously. Were to get Thank a policy you. It's so necessary too. Exactly. <laughs> like, I was yeah. gonna say the same thing. I can't imagine something like much more important than I don't know, something that affects literally all of the youth of this country. So that is mm. super, super cool. Yeah. What made you want to get into public health policy?
2: Oh gosh. So um I was always kind of Interested in this. I don't know if I knew it was public health policy, but um, when I was in high school, I volunteered with what we called the Gender Issues Committee, and we would hand out condoms outside of high schools in New York City that had high teen pregnancy and high STI rates. Um, we were super popular. <laughs> Once a month I would go down to an office of the NARAL New York affiliate that helped sponsor the program to collect condoms for that month. And I remember walking the door one day with a huge box. My dad's like, What's that? I'm like, five thousand condoms, dad.
1: <laughs> he just looked at me like,
2: okay. So, you know, I did this I did this for a long time. But I think professionally, I started out in the international space. I was actually working for a USAID-funded project that was helping to um, share high-quality health information with communities in what we would now call the Global South. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the areas served were in Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, and it was during the Bush administration, and so I had a four-page memo telling me what I could and could not say about abortion on the database that I was (laughs) responsible for adding articles to. And, um, that really ticked me off. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, um, you know, you'd see the, the sort of real-world consequences of, cutting off funding for an entity that was providing information about abortion, but was also providing pre-care, HIV testing and treatment and, you know, anti-malarials and all kinds of things. And they might have been the only clinic for literally a day's walk yeah. for people that they wow. were serving. And so that just made me very angry. And being sort of an activist in, in my younger years, uh, my reaction to that was to go volunteer on a presidential campaign. I'm uh, Kerry, who said the first thing he would do as president would be to repeal the global gag rule. Nice. nice. Obviously, you guys know how that shook out. Yeah. But I sort of yeah. got, hooked. <laughs> I got hooked on policy and politics and ended up doing political work for NARAL, helping elect candidates that were pro-choice and pro sex ed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from there kind of moved from politics over to policy because the other sort of aha of my life is it's really, really important. I think we're seeing this in real time. It's really important to elect people who represent your values. Mm -hmm. But once they get elected, they also need to have their feet held to the fire to do the things because you can have all the great people in the world and and gridlock in Congress. And Mm -hmm. so I started working on policy around the time that the Affordable Care Act was moving, which was probably the experience of a lifetime. And also I never, I never slept for like six months. So (laughs) I don't, it's kind of like college. And you ask people like, do you miss it? Would you go back and do it again? And they're like, oh, I loved it. I had so much fun. Never again.
0: Never (laughs) would do it again. That's really interesting because I know that with the Affordable Care Act, you know, the way birth control coverage shook out was pretty controversial as well. And, you know, I know there's a, there's a full mandate that, uh insurances must cover birth control unless you are some sort of religious organization that objects to that. Mm-hmm. Hobby yeah, Lobby. I remember Hobby Lobby was <laughs> at the center of that. Yeah. That's just crazy to me. Did you work on any of that or...
2: I did. Um, I actually what I will tell you a little bit of backstory. You know, the contraceptive coverage mandate was not ever intended to be just contraception.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a
2: sort of overall approach to the Affordable Care Act that we should incentivize preventive care. If we can if we can eliminate cost barriers to people getting preventive care, then in the long run, 20, 30 years down the line, we will save mm-hmm. the overall healthcare system a lot of money and people will be healthier.
0: Right.
2: And so there was an effort to incentivize this is way in the weeds, but there's something called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force or USPSTF, mm-hmm. And they kind of grade different interventions like a colonoscopy after 50 or mammograms mm-hmm. and say they they have a high value relative to the cost. Mm-hmm. So they say, like, if you do this for the entire population, you will catch the X number of cancers versus, you know, how much how many false positives right. Right. to people, right. money spent. Yeah. You know. But USPSTF, because the world is both racist and sexist, didn't have a lot of data on specific needs of women or people identi- who identify as women.
0: Just casually um, half the population. That's fine.
2: Yeah. There's not as much research that's done specifically on women. Right. So they, we were we were entering into a phase where there was going to be a lot of no copay services, but not necessarily with a focus on what a women need? in their, you know, annual Mm. healthcare visits and preventive care. So we started casting around for, you know, who's got a benchmark that we could peg this to, and there wasn't any. Mm. So the idea was born from uh, the staff and what was then Barbara Mikulski, a senator from uh, Maryland who has since retired, to basically say women's preventive services need to be covered without copay, and we will leave it to HHS to come up with what those high-value women's preventive services are. And then once the law passed, HHS deferred to what is now the National Academy of Medicine, used to be called the Institute of Medicine, but it's sort of a quasi-governmental entity that brings together medical experts Mm. for specific purposes, in this case to do a study on what are the most high-value, important women's preventive services. And they came up with that list that you see today that that is covered, whether it's your annual well woman or breastfeeding support and supplies Mm. or contraception or STI testing and treatment so those are how those things came to be but in addition to that anything that is sort of highly rated by USPSTF and actually recommended an immunization so every immunization that you get from the time you're a baby to the time you're 18 is also covered and that's a big part of why things like COVID vaccinations are also covered now yeah which is so great so it was (laughs) it was never it was never intended to be controversial it was intended to sort of fill a gap in women's health and then I think the contraceptive piece Mm -hmm. came up head on against an effort to politicize contraception and sort of link it to abortion because there's a very small portion of the population that is both anti-abortion and also anti-contraception. And they know that the anti-contraception piece is even more, even less popular. Mm
1: -hmm. And so
2: by tying it, they make it harder for members of Congress to support contraception.
1: Yeah, totally. It's like that one part of people's health that's like weirdly wrapped up in morality. <laughs> and you know, it's
2: it shouldn't be. Uh Gallup every year yeah. or every other year does a survey that's like what are the most morally acceptable things and birth control tops the list every <laughs> year. I think it's above divorce. Um abortion ranks pretty high but not up there. Like mm-hmm. it, generally speaking people out there don't see these things as controversial.
0: Right. There's yeah, just this some, is settled.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's just some powerful People
0: <laughs> that yeah, right. see it that They're way, very or see it loud. As a very loud a minority. Majority. Yes. They keep yeah. me
1: employed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. So, what is the current landscape of sex education in America? Because, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, and it seems to vary pretty wildly state to state. Yeah.
2: I would say even more than state to state. If that, it, varies widely like community to community. Mm -hmm. While some states have certain requirements and we can talk about what those are, communities still have a lot of leeway in what they decide to teach. So an individual school district might be different. So it is sort of like the wild west, like it's anything or nothing. And of course, it depends on what kind of educational institution you attend. Is that religiously affiliated? Is it secular? public or private, you know, all of these things interact. And then outside of the schoolroom is where a lot of sex ed happens. And that's really important to know that, you know, whether you're part of a boys and girls club, or you participate in some other youth group or youth serving entity, sometimes that's where that information is delivered. I think school systems face, you know, a whole lot of stress around having qualified people to teach this stuff, and also carving out time in the school day for it amidst, you know, the requirements they have. So, yeah. depending on the community, they may also sort of look side resources for for young people in their community. At the federal level, there are a couple of really great programs. One is called the Teen Pregnancy Prevention Program. Mm-hmm. Not my favorite name, but don't hold that against it. What it does <laughs> is provide grants to mostly community and local nonprofits around the country, a few school mm-hmm. districts, to provide young people with evidence-based sexual health education that's actually proven to change behavior.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And what's really great about TPP is they evaluate all of the things that they are that are out there being implemented. And then they learn from that and they say, oh, this is not really working as well anymore. It might be kind of dated or, hey, this new thing worked really well and it works with a population like native young people that we don't have a lot of resources for. So let's make sure the, the whole nation knows and is aware that this is out there and they can replicate it with their own, you know, investments in their own community. Mm -hmm. So it helps to sort of grow the knowledge base of, of what works and what is most helpful for young people based on, you know, demographics and age and, and situation. So that's really great. And then there is something called the personal responsibility education program or prep, not to be confused with, uh, (laughs) prophylactic HIV treatment, but prep, um, the program is um, really, really great. It provides states with funding to do comprehensive, evidence-based sexual health education, and to also include what they call adulthood preparation topics. States can, and communities can decide what's what's most needed, but often what we see are things like financial literacy, healthy relationships, things that are really setting you up to be successful as you sort of grow out of your, your teen years, yeah. and that is also evaluated and we learn a lot about what's working and not through that. And I think that's really important too. Like if you, if you were to run a program that was geared towards me in the 1990s, it would be so wildly out of date. And I think stuff has had that bad like this or like, what was this recorded in the seventies? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it's an ever changing field. And so that, that feedback loop and that role of the federal government to help learn what's working, learn what's mm-hmm. not working, and share that with the field writ large is really important. But I should say that those two programs together serve less than 2% of American teens.
0: Yeah. So
2: they're a drop wow. in the bucket. They, they help to facilitate innovation and learning and knowledge, and they can be great resources. You know, communities around the country can look at basically a menu of programs that the federal government has said, hey, here's the evidence that shows what we found when we evaluate them. Um, And that can be really helpful if you're a school board and you're trying to figure out, you know, what's going to meet your needs. But most sex ed is locally driven, and it, it widely varies. I think it's a big reason why we at Power to Decide believe that also creating online tools for young people where they can get information Mm -hmm. confidentially on their phones and things like that is so important because we can't in this country guarantee that everybody's going to get the same thing. We have a lot of thoughts at Power to Decide and my coalition partners about how we would go about doing that. Um, There's a bill called the Real Education and Access for Healthy Youth Act Mm -hmm. or RIA. Um, that has been introduced by Congresswoman Barbara Lee and Congresswoman uh, Alma Adams in the House and by Senator Cory Booker and Senator Mazie Hirono in the Senate. And this would set up a set of requirements for schools and other organizations receiving funding in terms of what they have to teach and sort of puts a baseline down of what it means to have high quality, comprehensive sexual health education, and then also provide some funds to help in places where young people are particularly disconnected from like youth-friendly clinical care mm-hmm. to help them get access to care. So yeah. your, your listeners should, should consider supporting RIA and urging their members of Congress to pass it.
1: And that would be at a federal level? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome.
2: Yeah. At a state level, like we talked about, you know, a lot of things even within a state are localized, but there are 38 states in the District of Columbia that mandate sex education or HIV education. But I should say only 18 states require program content to be medically accurate. Mm-hmm. So that's a big difference when you think about where. <laughs> you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so just because just because your state requires sex ed doesn't mean it's requiring good sex ed
0: yeah um, yeah can you imagine if that was true for anything else like we require <laughs> math education but it doesn't have to be accurate
2: like, <laughs> it could be anything you know i used to, i used to think that but i'm sort of horrified <laughs> at these eyes of what we teach in history class versus what we won't now that's true I, I think i think we're getting into a place where we are letting values be taught rather than facts yeah. and that's really really dangerous and it's probably a bigger topic for another time but i think sec mm-hmm. is feeling that same strain you know for sure and I
1: think yeah. it probably always has. Yeah. It's crazy, too, because we've talked about sex ed policy a little bit on this podcast before. And some states actually have mandates about teaching inaccurate things. Yes. <laughs> or like mm-hmm. totally morally based things about sex ed
0: or like vilifying gay people or
1: yeah that's Mm -hmm. just wrapped up in the government people's tax dollars are paying for that (laughs) like
0: yeah so a while
2: ago there was I think it is I think the funding for it has expired but in Mississippi there was a law that required for the first time in the state sex ed to be taught um, and in an effort by a really wonderful then Republican state senator who was really supportive of, of sort of high quality information and access to family planning, the, the best she could do was to require states to pick either from a list of comprehensive programs or a list of abstinence only programs. And almost half of the counties in the state picked a comprehensive program was this perfect no i mean were they all like some within that list of comprehensive programs there were some that were much better than others mm-hmm. but it was the first time that you saw sort of within a state that people i think consider extremely red that like about half the counties wanted to teach about contraception as well as abstinence mm-hmm. yeah um, and that's the other interesting thing that we often say is like if you poll parents on what they want their young people to learn it's a both and and so i think sometimes one of the ways that that's that school districts can get it wrong as they listen to a few loud people rather than asking everybody and doing that needs-based community survey and saying, what do you want?
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Um, And often that can help them to just sort of have, you know, it can bolster their efforts to teach high quality sex ed.
1: Yeah, totally. So could you tell us a little bit about what sex ed policies you're supporting in your work through Power to Decide right now? I mean, I think you probably mentioned. Yeah.
2: So we talked about some of the programs Mm -hmm. and we talked about RIA, which I think Mm -hmm. would be sort of game-changing legislation.
1: Yes. (laughs) Um,
2: I think think more broadly, one of the things that I really focus on is making sure that young people have confidential um, and youth-friendly access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care.
1: Right.
2: You know, we talk a lot about how SB8 and other laws in Texas have harmed people overall, but they have dramatically harmed young people who have to jump through legal hoops as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you haven't, it might be interesting to have someone from Jane's Due Process on your podcast. Um, they work with young people to help do uh, judicial bypass where they have to go before a judge, and prove themselves mature enough to make the decision to have abortion care without having a parent sign off on it. Oh my God. (laughs) So when I think about young people and I think about even myself, like getting access to the care that you need is not easy, especially when you are under 18. Yeah. So helping people have information, having really clear linkages to care, to me, like above and beyond just knowing, you know, if you're ready to have sex and how to protect yourself and have, you know, a, sa- a safe and healthy sex life, making sure that you have access to the healthcare you need in order to do that, because you can you can know that you want birth control, for example. Right. But if you don't have a way to get it, then that's really that's really a problem. Yeah. And we see this in you know rural community. Imagine going into the only pharmacy and they know everybody there and now mm-hmm. you want to go buy condoms. So how do we provide young people with safe, confidential spaces where they can access the care they need? Yeah. And that is sort of when I'm thinking about policies that are broader than just sex ed or broader than just young people, that's often what I'm thinking about is those people who are gonna face additional barriers, whether it's somebody who's undocumented or somebody who is under 18, how are we gonna make sure that when we're trying to advance a policy that improves reproductive health care access, that we're including them and in thinking about their very specific needs. And so things like the Title 10 Family Planning Program a lot of your, re- your listeners might not know, but in a lot of states, you can't just get something like birth control without parental consent. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a federal program called the Title 10 Family Planning Program that provides care, provides funding to clinics around the country to provide care. And there, um, Title 10 has confidentiality rules that sort of supersede any state rules. So if a clinic is using Title X funding to provide a young person with contraception, they don't have to get parental consent. Um, Mm -hmm. So making sure that we increase funding for programs like that to make sure that more young people can get that care access. And also those young people may not want to use their parents' insurance if their parents are insured. Again, Title X can evaluate their income based on just the young person themselves, and as a result, provide them with usually free or extremely (laughs) low-cost care. Yeah. So, you know, how do we how do we support programs that, that are there for people that are sort of falling through the cracks mm-hmm. in that way? And young people are, are are a major population that sometimes falls through the cracks when they need sort of particularly confidential sensitive care like sexual reproductive health care.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like when you're working with policies, you're really trying to keep in mind the people who are underserved first yes. and foremost.
0: Yeah.
2: Power to Decide really thinks about this from an equity framework. So we want to advance policies that improve everybody's lives. But when we're thinking about what that policy looks like, we're thinking about the people that are that are receiving care in the most inequitable way right now. Yeah. So how do we think about this from the perspective of BIPOC individuals? Mm -hmm. How do we think about this in the perspective of trans individuals? You know, is the bill language gender neutral? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, are we are we making sure that there's no ID requirement that could make it hard for young people, but also for anybody who's undocumented to access care? So those yeah. are like the ways in which this sort of plays out when you're trying to do good policy and make sure that no one, not only is no one getting left behind, but that the people that are being left behind in the system mm-hmm. writ large are centered in how you're approaching
1: the yeah. policy. That's awesome. That's going to do so much good in the world. So, I mean, it sounds like you're obviously like very familiar with working on a lot of sex ed policy. Is there any areas in particular that you think will need the most support or changes or work over the next coming years?
2: Um, this is going to be a little bit of a wonky answer, but I will say that in the last 10 years, there was sort of an evidence movement in public policy and sex ed was at the forefront of it. And this has been fantastic. Right. We've come up with all these curricula that we know when they are delivered with fidelity. So in the same way each time that they actually change behavior, that more young people use contraception when they have sex or more young people wait longer to have sex or they have fewer partners, like really concrete, measurable things. But these programs are are fully packaged deals, if that makes any sense. Like, Mm -hmm. you have to do this many sessions at this many hours, you know, with this exact content. There isn't room for any kind of deviation. And I understand why that is, right? Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that everybody's getting the same high-quality program. But I think one of the things that's missing is we have this sort of wild west of things that have no evidence or even evidence that they're harmful, and then we have this, like, gold standard of things that we know you can replicate and get a result. Yeah. But in between is what are, the, what are the components of those high-quality programs that, that we're seeing a pattern? Like, a lot of high-quality programs don't just talk about birds and the bees. They talk about healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, um, a lot of these programs um, don't just talk about contraception, but they talk about where you can go to get it. So how do we, how do we, as as sort of people who want to make sure that we're we're cultivating the field of high quality sex ed, how do we start lifting out those components so that we can share with the field and with the average educator, listen, you may not have the resources to do 10, you know, three hour sessions this Mm -hmm. semester, but here's the components that we know that if you teach, there's a strong likelihood that programs that include those components are going to really help young people so to me one of the missing things is we we sort of have like gold standard and crap
0: <laughs> and yeah. not a lot of
2: like <laughs> there's not a lot on the continuum for people t- who can't do that perfect thing mm-hmm. um, and i think that misses out on the opportunity to give young people some really good information and support
1: yeah so kind of almost sounds like modularize <laughs> comprehensive yeah, <sex> like, ed. <laughs>
2: Yeah, look at it and say what are the good components. And we know that there's a laundry list of things that we in an ideal world we want to share all of them. But mm-hmm. there are a few things that we know stand out in almost all the programs that are that are showing, you know, real evidence of behavior change. Yeah. And I think making those components available, making that information available to the field, encouraging them to do programs that include those components. Yeah. would do a lot for young people, particularly yeah. because you know, the evidence is always going to change, right? But we Mm -hmm. do see patterns.
1: Yeah. This is just kind of a random thought I had, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. But we've kind of seen over the last year with COVID and vaccine misinformation and everything, a little bit of a lack of trust in medical science and facts that are shared from particularly big organizations. Do you see that bleeding over into some of this sex ed policy, especially when it comes to sharing the evidence of studies?
2: Um, I don't I, I think it's always been there in sex ed policy. It's always yeah. been a little bit of a red herring on the part of people who don't want anything more than abstinence only until marriage to be taught to question mm-hmm. the evidence or to put forth their own that I would say is a lot often junk science. You know, <laughs> the gold standard is is you publish an article that's been peer reviewed in, you know, an accredited journal. And a lot of the abstinence-only-until-marriage stuff is not in that space, right? Yeah. Um, There are a couple of abstinence-only-not-until-marriage programs for really younger young people, like Mm 11-year-olds, that has been reviewed and shows proof that it changes behavior, right? But that's not what we're really talking about. Yeah. And I I think what happens writ large is that communicating complex medical and scientific topics in ways that are relevant to young people is hard to begin with. Yeah. Um, When we set out uh, your, your listeners may know, but power to decide runs an awesome website called Mm bedsider.org, where you can go to learn anything about any method of contraception, a whole lot else about sexual health. Mm -hmm. You can find the clinic nearest to you that offers that method, what you might expect to pay, you know, how to get enrolled in health insurance, like everything. And then some, And when BedSider first started, we set out to be, with due respect to the CDC, the opposite of a CDC pamphlet. (laughs) Um, You know, and and delivering that information in ways that are relevant to young people is a skill set. Yeah. And I'm not sure that everybody communicating vaccine information right now has that skill (laughs) set, nor are they all speaking from one hymnal. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think overall, one of the things that we are going to need... Our young people to do is to be discerning um, consumers of information, mm-hmm. and I think in some ways they are. I mean, I the young people in my life know how to spot, you know, pardon me, but like dumbass conspiracy theories <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> They're not on Facebook very much, but they know how to spot the dumbass comp- conspiracy theory. It's more people <laughs> my age that buy into that stuff, right? Mm-hmm, right? Because they've been consuming digital media and social media their entire lives. Yeah. You know, they're digital natives. But I do think that part of this sort of plethora nation, good and bad, is being a consumer of it. Um, and I, I think it's on us to help provide resources that are in in young people's terms, through young people's channels to do that. Like, I will tell you, I record TikTok videos about what's happening in policy. And That's awesome. that feels really <laughs> strange and awkward for me because, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm part of that weird generation. They say um, I had sort of an analog childhood and a digital adolescence. So the internet really became a thing around the time I was in middle school. But... You know, and so this is not native to me, and it's and it sometimes feels awkward, but I 100% agree that that's where we need to be reaching people and giving them tools to become activists themselves for their own care and all of that. So I think vaccines are just a really good example of something that we've seen in sexual health for a long time. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that some mistrust of the medical system is valid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the reproductive health history in this country is fraught with reproductive coercion, with yeah. outright violation, um, and not just like in the long distant past. You know, about four or five years ago, um it came out that uh some people who were in uh an immigration detention center were being taken for hysterectomies without them understanding. Yeah. the surgery that they were being given. Um, and there's a long, long history of that. I think if your reader or your listeners, sorry, are interested, there's a wonderful documentary called "No Más Bebes mm-hmm. about the forced sterilization in California of Puerto Rican women. So we also have to combat sort of trust at a cultural level. You know, our Our CEO is an OBGYN, uh, Dr. Reagan McDonald-Mosley, and and we talk about this a lot, about having people see providers that look like them, that speak their language, that are in their community, because that is where the trust is gonna come from. It's not gonna come from someone, quite frankly, that looks like me. Mm -hmm. So that's another really important part, whether we're meeting young people where they are by by speaking in their language and on their channels and, and speaking through influencers or others, or speaking to specific communities through trusted messengers, mm-hmm. that's really important. You know, Senator Warnock from Georgia was is, is a reverend and pastor and also taught sex ed when he was ministering. And, you know, here we're talking about somebody who has the trust of his community to talk openly about sex and contraception mm-hmm. and things like that. That's the messenger. Right. So it it can vary, but, but trust is also in who is delivering the information. Yeah.
1: Wow. (laughs) super powerful. Yeah. That's amazing. I I love that. I just threw in a random question that wasn't on our outline and you like knocked it out of the park.
2: (laughs) Well, I love, I love when I get a chance to talk about that because I do think it's a huge issue, right? Like, Yeah. yeah, I, I think as somebody who does this for a living, When I feel like I'm getting my chain yanked in a doctor's office, I'm pretty vocal about it. I'm also like, you know, a fussy New Yorker who's just like, (laughs) "Uh -uh, I'm not getting what I need. But it's very hard to do that when you don't come from a from a point of privilege. Yeah. And it's hard to do it when you don't see people who look like you. Mm-hmm. And even myself, I tend to prefer female doctors because mm-hmm. they tend to listen to my health concerns. And that, whereas I've had male doctors who are like, nah, you're fine. That's not real yep. pain," <laughs> you know, and that's that's really problematic and it can happen anywhere. And mm-hmm. you, we see it a lot in the maternal health crisis, even when you adjust for income and education and any other sort of marker that you would think would empower a patient. We still see a three to one disparity in maternal mortality and morbidity for black women in this country. And mm-hmm. Serena Williams, I think, is the most you know, prominent example of that. Mm -hmm. So if we're not, if we're not thinking about listening to people and really hearing their concerns, even if they're coming to us with misinformation, how do we dispel that without writing them off, but actually listening and making sure that, that someone who's relevant to them, who they trust is, is correcting that misinformation.
1: That's really important.
0: Yeah. 1000%. So I know we've talked a lot about how things can improve and where we've seen things that need to change, but what are some positive changes that you've seen, you know, since you've been working in this space?
2: Well, for starters, um, when I started working in this, there was no federal funding for evidence-based comprehensive sex ed. And now there is, Mm -hmm. um, is it perfect? No. And is it, you know, enough? No, but, Every federal resource was being dedicated, if at all, to abstinence only until marriage programs when I started working in this space. And there is still money at the federal level going to abstinence only until marriage programs. And we're working really hard to cut that off because it's harmful. (laughs) Um, It's not just not effective, it's harmful. Yeah, right. But, um, But that said, it's not the only thing that's out there now in terms of federal investments. And those investments are really helping the field learn. So I'm hopeful about that. The other thing that I'm really hopeful about is like young people themselves and their parents are just having a lot more open conversation than they were when I was growing up. Um, I see this in my own family amongst the young people and parents that I know. Um, You know, I, some of my friends are the parents of teenagers now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, just seeing the way that they talk to their young people and the way young people process this stuff. I was saying to someone the other day that for people of a certain age, for teenagers, using gender neutral language is like second nature. It's not something they have to think about or work at. It comes naturally because it's part of their being, you know? And that's, that's just not the case for those of us older. We had to work at it and really, Mm -hmm. you know, say to ourselves, no, 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 you got that wrong. Mm -hmm. And so in, in small and big ways, I think young people are, are, they give me a lot of hope. Um, they're also like such an activist generation right now, like I yeah, when I was in high school and I said I was a feminist, like I was made fun of, right? you know, so it's it's just not that way, like f- for better or worse the the affronts to people's autonomy has really galvanized a whole new generation of activists. So those are just a few of the things I'm hopeful about, yay, we love. I'm a glass that. half full
1: person, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you probably yeah. have to be working in public policy. <laughs>
2: You kind of do. And you have to. And here's the thing. You you spend a long time. I think sometimes people are like, what's the point of being involved in politics? Or what's the point of voting? Or what's the point of, you know, calling my senator? You spend 10 years sort of beating your head against the wall. And then you pass the Affordable Care Act and eliminate copays for contraception. (laughs) And then you spend another 10 years beating your head against the wall, protecting it. Right? it doesn't come as fast as we want it to, but it does come. And like the first time one of my friends came and said, Oh my God, this is a game changer. Like I was paying $75 a month for the very specific birth control I needed. And that killed my budget. And now it doesn't because of that, like that's huge. Right. So I, I dine out on those times when you do something and it changes somebody's real world circumstances. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We live for that for sure. (laughs) So, last but not least, I guess if someone out there or someone one of our listeners knows isn't receiving high quality, medically accurate, non fear mongering sex education, what should that person do? What should we do to help people in our lives that might not have great access?
2: Well, first of all, I will say that I think it's really important that every young person have someone they can trust to talk honestly about sex, love, and relationships with. And that doesn't have to be your parent if that's not the relationship you have. But -hmm. think about adult siblings, teachers, coaches, um, aunts and uncles. I mean, like I said, you know, I grew up raised by a single father. So I turned to other women in my life who, like my sister, you know, who's 11 years older often gave me really good advice and were just sort of there for me to be a sounding board. Um, so I think that's really important and, and to think about who those people are in your life that you trust and you can go to. Um, but there's also a lot of online resources that you can access on your phone. Um, you know, confidentially bedsider.org is a great one. Um, I can be a university. They run something called GoAskAlice.com. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, where you can ask sexual health, relationship, even other sort of public health questions like drugs or things like that. And a doctor or nurse will answer the question. Scarletine is another really one, dot. Um, is another sort of like online sex ed, lots of really great information. Amaze.org is another one like that where you can get really good education that maybe you should have gotten in school or after school, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. So I would just encourage folks to, to... you know, I think young people are good consumers of fact versus fiction when it comes to mm-hmm. online resources, but those are just a few that I trust that I would send young people in my life to if they needed resources that I couldn't give them myself.
0: That's awesome. amazing. Thank you. Yeah, seriously. And then is there anything else that we can do to help support Power to Decide and, you know, better sex education and contraception access?
2: Yes. And I will send you this link so you can share it uh, with your listeners directly, but... Um, Power to Decide has a campaign right now that's going to encourage people to increase funding for the teen pregnancy prevention program, which has to be funded every year. Mm -hmm. Um, So stay tuned in the future. We'll have asks around RIA and PrEP. But right now, the federal government still has to sort out funding for the next fiscal year that we're already in. Um, And the current funding ends February 18th. So we are pushing on Congress to increase significantly the resources that they are putting into evidence-based sex ed. And so you can contact your members of Congress um, through our website and urge them to spend more money on quality (laughs) evidence-based sex ed. And I would say if you think your member of Congress is already supportive, that is not a reason not to contact them. I hear this a lot amongst my friend group, and what I try to explain is members of Congress have a lot of competing priorities, and they have to decide where they're, where they're sort of going to fall on their sword and where they're going to be like, okay, I'll have to live to fight another day. Mm-hmm. And so a member that might be supportive might still not go to the mat for your thing without hearing from a lot of constituents that your thing is really important. Mm-hmm. And then for, sen- for members of Congress that don't agree with you, again, I hear a lot of, oh, well, what's the point? Well, if they don't even hear from people who disagree with them, then they are under the mistaken identity that all of their constituents think what they're doing is great. Yeah, And, you know, young people are either voters or going to be voters very soon. And you should make your voice heard. That's not OK. So that's my pitch for engaging with members of Congress. In fact, I even own a sweatshirt that says call Congress <laughs> <It's a> number <laughs> for the main switchboard. But call, email engage them on social media, but get involved because they control what you do. And then by the same token, remember that your state legislators, your school board, you know, those are other places where your sex ed is determined. So contacting them, engaging them, and talking about what you want and what you need as a young person is really, really
1: important. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much, Rachel. Is is there anywhere that people can follow your work or maybe see some of those TikToks you're talking about?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. So both Power to Side and Bedsider have social media channels, TikTok, Insta, all of that stuff. Um, or you can find me at Rachel Fay on Twitter. Long ago, I learned do one channel well. And so Twitter happens <laughs> to be mine. And I'm often lifting up other things that are happening in the reproductive health policy space, um, as well as occasionally Tweeting pictures of our puppy or talking about Boston sports. So, yes.
1: <laughs> come for those two, Perfect. But but stay for the policy. <laughs> Love it. Wow, this is incredible. I I'm like you know it's it's early in my time, but I'm awake now. I'm like woo. Sex ed policy. <laughs> oh I actually, this Wired is great to start off my week and and feel sort of energized to do the work. Yeah. But thank you guys. Yes. Thank you so much for joining
0: us. Thank you for amazing. having. Me. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode. Please feel free to email us at hello at com with any questions or thoughts or comments or, you know, I can't think of anything witty to say, but send us whatever you want in the email. Check out the episode description to find links to Power to Decide as well as any resources Rachel mentioned during the interview.
1: You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck. and if you haven't had a chance yet go take a look at our website which is sexedshouldn'tsuck.com. You can find episodes, blog posts and most importantly our shop. That's where you go to get merch like the Sex Edge Shouldn't Suck logo mug that you can have your lover pee into if you're into pee pee play would
0: be useful for that or you could just drink coffee out of it you know yeah, you could just drink yeah i guess you can drink coffee out of it tea or water or, or soda <laughs> or wine anything or really cum. i wouldn't recommend okay yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna yak anyone's yum there it Do might take want. a
1: while for you to fill a mug with cum but you know what be not i don't i don't know your Split. You know? no, yeah, that life was a better <laughs> word.
0: <laughs> also, if you want other ways to support the podcast, head on over to our Patreon. Our patrons get all kinds of cool benefits like free stickers, shout-outs. <gasps> Did you say shout-outs? Well, I have a shout-out for you.
1: Bill! <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Phil, for being a supporter of our show.
0: You are a real cool person and we really appreciate you. You can find a link on our website or search for Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck on Patreon.com.
1: Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter as well. It is the best way to stay up to date on the happenings of Sex Ed Shouldn't Suck and learn more about sex education in the news and around the world.
0: And last but not least, thank you so much, Kent, for mastering our sound. We love you. Thank you, Kent. Join us next week as we take a deep
1: dive into the history of birth control. Thanks to our very own amazing and wonderful Jen, who did a ton of research for this episode. So definitely join us for that. See you then. Bye. We actually are interviewing the Virgin Mary.
0: Virgin Mary herself.
1: Well, it's not actually her. It's just a potato chip that is shaped like her oh. that we bought off of eBay for ten thousand dollars. So, gotcha. If you, That's where all your Patreon money goes, guys. Yeah, it's to bring fantastic content like this. Actually, and if you want to know a sneak peek, um, one of us actually eats the potato chip at the end. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it was the best, most expensive potato chip I've ever eaten. Well, fucking now they know it was you. What are they going to listen to it for? I mean, they can still tune in and hear the (laughs) crunching, you know? It's an ASMR crunch
1: of a Virgin Mary potato chip.